0: we help companies improve sales performance, executing the growth strategy at the point of sale. Find us at forcemanagement.com. Enjoy today's episode.
1: Welcome to the Revenue Builders Podcast. I'm John McMahon, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host, the big man, John Kaplan. How are you, Cap? I'm doing really good, Johnny. Really good. Looking forward to this conversation today. It's going to be fantastic. Cap, today we have a very special guest to discuss the ever-increasingly important topic of client success. Allison was the chief operating officer at Gainsight. She's been on the board of directors of eCompliance, Rainforest QA, Commvault, and DP Labs. Allison's currently the founder and CEO of the New Normal Fund, She's published hundreds of thought leadership pieces about customer success, and she's the co-author of the best-selling book, The Customer Success Economy, Why Every Aspect of Your Business Needs a Paradigm Shift. Hey, Kat, please help me welcome Allison Pickens.
0: Allison, great to have you. Thanks for carving out the time. Uh, I think this is uh, an awesome topic to bring to our listeners, so thanks for coming.
2: Absolutely. Thanks for having me.
1: Hey, Allison, let's jump in, but let's start with a little bit of a history lesson. At least this is from my perspective, having, you know, been in the software industry for a long time, just so we can ground everybody on why client success has become so increasingly important over time. So in the old model, companies sold a perpetual software license where the customer owned the software for life and the customer paid a large upfront fee to own the software. And they paid a percentage of the license as an annual maintenance fee so they could receive basically software updates, which came out at that time, like every three or six months, not like every day today. In that model, though, cl- customer success was essentially what I call break fix. You know, something in the software was broken. The company was typically reactive, slow to respond to customer issues because customer support was viewed by a lot of CEOs as just a cost center to their business. So and the companies believed that they had secured the customer and then the customer felt captive you know to the software vendor. Then the cloud came along and we moved to subscription where customers gained more power because now they essentially rented the software on an annual basis and companies now realized that these customers could leave them prior to the annual renewal. So now CEOs decided to put more of an investment in customer service to secure the renewals, reduce churn, and many companies even changed the name um, to the organization to client success or customer success. Now, the software world's changing, you know, from some subscription to consumption. Customer holds all the cards because essentially they can leave at a moment's notice. Because customers are billed only when they use the software, you know, lights on, lights off, sub-second billing. Now many, but not most companies are investing more in client success and even client advocacy. And as you state in your book, a fundamental shift has occurred and should occur in most of these companies where client success has gone from a job function to a company-wide movement. So can we start with, you know, why customers now, you know, have so much power versus before. And it's not just from because we moved from subscription to consumption.
2: Absolutely, I think there are a few reasons. As you mentioned, you noted one of them, which is that the revenue model has shifted. And because you can't just sell a customer and ignore them after the fact, you actually need to pay attention to them in order to generate revenue for them later. Um, you now need to invest in actually supporting them. So I think that you know we go where the revenue goes. And as you noted, with the further shift to consumption-based pricing, um, you really have to care about whether the customer is using the product because the usage is your most important pricing lever. Its Adoption is literally equivalent to revenue. But as you noted, there are also other reasons why the power has shifted from vendors to customers. One of them is the rise of social media and people's usage of social media in a work context. People... Comment on vendors that they like and dislike online, and um, negative comments can be amplified very quickly and broadly. Actually, you know, if you have one unhappy customer, theoretically, it could take down your company to have right. you know one negative tweet that's retweeted or quoted or you know liked many times. Um, and so, uh, I think that's one big reason. Another reason is that there's been a shift to working with company uh, with customers in digital form. So. And if you're on a texting basis with your customers, which, you know, many, um, sales folks, customer success folks, even CEOs are, or if you're communicating with your customers in Slack channels, which companies increasingly are, um, customers expect instant responses uh, in the same way they expect instant responses from their friends and their family members and their coworkers. So, um, you know, with that kind of, um, higher expectation for communication, there's also just a higher expectation for, customer experience generally. So I think there are a few reasons for this. I, and I, I think, you know, these things in, in general have propelled just I think a massive cultural shift to people feeling as though their vendors need to have their best interests at heart. Um, you know, people expect that they're buying something in order to get value. Increasingly, ROI can be measured as well. Um, and so with more data on the ROI comes like higher expectation of, of proof of that ROI. Right. I think we're also seeing a big, um, you know, shift toward free trials, freemium in general, product-like growth, which means that people actually expect to get value even before they start paying. Um, So things have been flipped in a number of ways.
1: And Allison, I don't think that most companies have really responded, you know, to have a company-wide mindset on client success? Cause it, and, it, and as we stated, you stated, so important. Why do you think so many companies are a little slow to respond to the critical role of client success?
2: It's interesting. I, a few years ago, probably around the time I wrote the book, I would have said there are still many companies that are slow to adopt customer success and realize how important customers are to generally company valuation. Nowadays I would say that uh, we're in the you know late majority stage of the adoption curve of customer success that actually if a company hasn't really started taking customer success seriously they will probably be left behind in pretty short order um nowadays yeah, I work with a lot of venture backed companies I I run a venture fund where I invest in SaaS companies across stages from seed through you know series C or D sometimes and often I notice the first customer facing hire will be a customer success person, not actually a salesperson, um, in part because founders already know the value of customer success, having seen it at their past company. And also because of this embrace of product-led growth where actually you know, you have customers before you have revenue. And so you actually need people who can pay attention to your customers and help shepherd them along the journey. So I, I don't see too many companies, at least in my world, Not embracing customer success, I would say that um, there there have been a few changes since I wrote the book. In particular, I think actually the fact that companies have embraced customer success as a company wide imperative sometimes means that they don't invest in customer success as a function as much because many functions across the company are more oriented toward customers than they used to be. For example, if your product management team is very oriented toward Building the roadmaps that it addresses customer value and and concerns that customers have voiced, you may not need to invest in people as much who are perhaps creating band aids for product efficiencies. Um, so that that might be actually a positive reason why some companies don't don't invest in customer success as a as a function as much.
1: I'm also Good. seeing um, where because there's been a lot of people with the break-fix mentality out there that's still holding on to the title, you know, of like VP of customer success, that some companies, because they understand that now this client success person needs to respond to the customer quickly, understand their situation, and also sell them, like cross-sell them, upsell them on other products, that I've seen some companies take a VP of sales, and put them in charge of client success. And then they hire people that are kind of like a combination of a salesperson and a SE. You know, technical person that actually has, you know, really good sales capabilities. Have you seen some of that in the, in, in the industry?
2: Definitely. Sometimes those teams are called account management teams and you'll have a VP of account management who has yeah. a sales background. But sometimes, as you noted, they're called customer success teams. They also might be called um, the renewals team. There are, you know, a variety of, of titles, but yes, in general, I, I I do see that as, as quite common. I do think that there are sales type skills that some types of customer success people need to have, you know, the art of persuading someone, um, helping to unify two different stakeholders points of view. If you're seeing conflict at your customer, um, helping to guide stakeholders along, you know, a certain process of getting to value or coming to some sort of revenue related decision um, so yeah i mean i think that those those persuasive skills have become useful in a different context
1: well that's something else that you talk about in your book that we have to get the, we have to move towards an organization that is giving customers and focused on the customer's business outcomes not just letting them not just having them buy the product install the product and hoping that they get their business outcome we have to focus on their particular outcome how's the implementation going and are they achieving their their business outcome
2: i think that's especially true in this macro environment any cfo will tell you that they're looking more closely at the revenue that they're the roi that they're getting from every software investment that they've made and you know roi is the outcome that customers are expecting so um you know it becomes really important for customer success teams in particular to be able to explain the ROI that customers are getting. I'd say, you know, um, even better than customer success, solely being responsible for that would be, you know, the company as a whole, as a vendor, um, orienting customers toward understanding their ROI story um, and, and having different functions that the vendor be responsible for that. For example, some companies are actually putting dashboards, embedding dashboards into the product itself that mm. can showcase the usage that, those customers have um, the value that they're getting on on various dimensions, and when you're logging into this product every day as a customer and you're seeing the ROI that you're getting, um, you're reminded right on a more continuous basis and a self serve basis, um, you know that that you are getting value.
0: I was going to ask that because the my experience with my own success with offerings has evolved from those people that can give me insights into how I'm using their products or services and what I could be doing to enhance outcomes are the ones that I gravitate to. So what have you seen of the evolution of kind of building those insights into into the product? I think I've heard you say, or I've read in your book, you know, you, you, it begins with an outstanding product. Um, what have you seen in the evolution of that? Has it always been that way that the insights were built into the product or has that evolved?
2: I definitely think it's evolved. I think companies have realized that the product itself is a channel to the customer. Actually, in some no. ways, it's the most obvious channel. But historically, this, I guess, wasn't obvious to companies. They thought that like these insights had to be delivered via human. But if people are logging into the product every day, especially if it's a sort of productivity tool, um, that's a great place for you to, you know showcasing that's about ROI. And also, as you noted, help share best practices for customers to actually get value. I think that's that journey sort of started with um, in-app walkthroughs, right? Like companies like Pendo started offering these products where you could kind of like click through a tutorial, um, yeah. maybe when you first signed into a product or when there was a new feature that was launched. And, and you still see these. I, I, I do think that much like um, with email marketing, people have some fatigue with in-app messaging. So I think its power has been diminished a little bit. But I think folks have, you know, learned other types of ways apart from these standard walkthroughs to help educate the customer in the product. For example, you know, companies like Airtable have templates, right, that they um have, you know, accumulated so that when you first log in, you can choose among the use cases that you have for that product and then not have to deal with a blank canvas to, um, get value. So that, you know, that's, I think another form of like in product best practice sharing. Um, and then also, you know, I, I think another indication that communicating things through the product has become much more standard is that you're starting to see a whole category of embedded analytics, um, mm-hmm. being built. I mean, companies like Explo and inventive as well, you know, company or companies that are, you know, um, basically allowing uh, the customers of their customers to see how they are using the product and, um, you know, be able to improve the value that they're getting from there.
1: Yeah, that's one of the laws that you have in the book. I think it's, you know, law number five, which is relentlessly monitor and manage customer health. And you basically say that, you know, vendors need to recognize that they're in the business of driving outcomes and they also must shoulder the responsibility of change management at the customer.
2: Absolutely.
0: Yeah. But, but I had a question with that when I read that. So you, you also say in the book, customer health is to the customer success. What sales pipeline is to sales, the predictor yeah. of future customer behavior. Um, how do you monitor customer health? What is your definition of monitoring customer health?
2: It's a great question. When we started out at Gainsight, The customer health score was the metric essentially that we were evangelizing. And it was likened to a lead score in the marketing or sales world. So uh, the idea is that you wanted to be able to, as you said, like predict whether the customer was likely to renew. And so you would have a score that would perhaps range from zero to 100, where, you know, 100 is they are perfectly likely to renew and zero is they're perfectly unlikely to renew. And, um, that score would be calculated based on a number of other metrics like product usage. Um, you know, perhaps a a recent NPS rating, whether the customer had outstanding support tickets or whether those tickets were severe in nature or had taken a long time to resolve. You can imagine all the different inputs you would have into whether, you know, customers considered healthy or, or likely to renew. I think, um, It's important as customer success has become more broadly understood as kind of a fundamental of a company's sort of nature as opposed to a particular function. It's become important to understand that there are different things to measure with your customers in order to understand how your business is operating. For example, the PQL or product qualified lead is a metric that is commonly adopted by particularly venture-backed companies. Um, but also some public companies as well that have more product-led models. And the PQL helps you understand whether, um, you know, users within an account that you have, perhaps like users that signed up through a self-serve method by swiping their credit card, um, you know, sort of virtually on your website, um, you know, whether those people are kind of indicate that that account is prime for uh, a corporate level contract. So you could imagine if you have a bottom-up model, you're having a bunch of users at a particular uh company sign up for your product. Maybe they're not really collaborating, but independently they're realizing that this is an interesting product. Then they start kind of working together uh, through the product. They start using it more. And you realize that actually if you know you sold to an executive level or, you know, um sort of central point of contact at that company. You could sell an even bigger contract size than what all these individual users are paying for, and you could, in turn, offer more value by enabling permission controls, better um, types of you know invoicing and billing, um, you know visibility into what those customers are using. There's more advanced features that an organization could benefit from that individual users couldn't. Um, so the PQL is an example of not a predictor of renewal, but a predictor of whether there is this massive upgrade or expansion opportunity that's that's possible. Um, and then separately, you might have, you know, you might predict what the renewal is likely to be. And you also might have some kind of prediction mechanism for whether that particular customer account is likely to refer in other accounts, which of course is another source of revenue that you could have from your customers. So I, I think this original thought of a kind of universally valuable score for customers. I don't think that that's as relevant to how companies are operating nowadays, but it was a very useful foundation for building the customer success movement.
1: Don't you see more and more companies building instrumentation or telemetry into their products so that they can not only make the client success people more efficient because they can understand if this is, let's say, ideal behavior of a new customer that just bought our product. And now we see that, they're, that someone's going off the ideal behavior, it may trigger that they're not using a certain feature, using a certain capability in the wrong way. It sends a trigger to client success. And now they know specifically, you know, why they're calling the customer and what type of problem the customer's having. Are you seeing more and more of that in the industry?
2: Definitely. I think that's a very standard workflow at this point. And it's, it's wonderful to see it, I think, so broadly adopted. And I, I think that's an example of, sort of a, a real time translation of data into action um, that doesn't necessarily um, speak to some kind of predictive score of some future revenue outcome. It's simply right. we notice yeah. this, this behavior now, like take action right away. And, and that's really where you want to be operating as a company is like in the moment helping customers as opposed to thinking, oh, you know what what exactly you know is going to happen 3 months from now certainly you can change that outcome if you're responding in real time and and i would add to that that um you know it it's hard not to bring up generative ai in a discussion nowadays because it really right. impacts like <laughs> every <laughs> every industry and like all parts of our lives in a way um but with generative ai many many companies many startups now are building on open ais gpt3 um and perhaps you know building other model or you know building on top of other platforms as well in order to surface, um, you know, not just insights from all the data that companies are gathering on their customers, but also to be able to like crystallize those insights into talking points that a sales rep or a customer success person, you know, might be able to use with their customers. So it's amazing when you can, um, you know, have software that looks across all these data sources and doesn't just say, oh, this customer's usage dropped, you should intervene now, but it says... This customer's use dropped. And here are, um, you know, three best practices that you could recommend. And here's the email template that you should use when you email the customer. And, um, you know, here are several other customers that are similar to this customer that were able to recover from that low usage. Why don't you reference those customers in your Easy. email as a proof point? So the fact that we're now able to translate, you know, customer behavior into action and but, and also. Um, not not just sort of prompt the action, but actually formulate the language that people can use. I mean, that that's like a whole other level of ensuring great customer outcomes.
1: Yeah, and then so when easy. you can look across all your customers like that, that can also help further define the ideal customer profile, and maybe even just you can figure out what new capabilities or products you may need, you know, from that ideal customer profile across all your different customers.
2: Definitely. Yeah. I think that ideal customer profile, um, it becomes very important, especially for, um, for marketing folks or sales folks and especially for early stage companies that are trying to figure out, you know, what's working, um, among my existing customers and, and therefore what types of customers should I target as my sort of next, um, you know, uh, you could call it next bowling pin, um, to use the crossing chasm analogy.
0: What about the, In the book, you talk about kind of joint success plans and being very transparent with um, data and strategy. How much of this, um, of the insight that you're gaining about the customers or what you're struggling with or what that customer might be struggling with, how much of that do you and how do you share it with customers as part of the plan?
1: I think
2: in general, our society is leaning toward greater transparency. I, I think there's a general mistrust of authorities, of um the vendors that are selling us things. And I think the more transparent you can be as a vendor, the better. Um I think actually it builds trust when you can say things like, we messed up. I remember one time, um, you know, we uh, at Gainsight, we had a customer, unfortunately, that was not getting value, their implementation kind of dragged on had a lot of false starts for different reasons, and um some of those reasons were you know not gainsight's fault if you if you could possibly make it a binary thing, but some of them definitely were our fault. um We had not executed well, and um my team and I we got on the phone with a customer and said, "We're sorry, we messed up. We want to make it up to you. Here's what we're prepared to do. We're going to dedicate these particular people, and on this time frame. We think we can get you from X to Y, but we need your help as well to do that. What do you think? And I think that there was a silence on, on the other end because they were so shocked that we admitted fall, right? Like how often, you know, 10 years ago, did you actually hear vendors say that? I, I think people Thanks. know that other people are fallible, that they make mistakes. What's unusual is that they will have the humility to, you know, admit to it. And, and I think that humility can, really help build the trust that ends up building your business. So, you know, besides admitting mistakes, which hopefully you don't have to do that often, you can share things like, again, you know, how much is the customer using the product? What ROI has the customer gotten? Actually, um, in cases where the, the usage in ROI is pretty low, sharing it with the customer can actually be an opportunity to prompt them to action. Yeah. I've noticed a, a very successful tactic is to, show a customer where they are in terms of benchmarking with other companies that are like them. If you say, yeah, like well, you're in the bottom 25th percentile of wow. companies like you and using our product, that is, is sort of implied that they could be getting more value because 75% of companies that are like them are getting more value than they are. So it it um, in- inspires kind of a, a competitive spirit that ends up making the customer engage more with you and therefore helping them get more value. Well,
0: you know what's interesting about that, Allison, is that I think it's just human nature. When you make an investment in something to get an outcome, you are naturally inclined to ask yourself and the vendor, how am I doing against others? And I would say that, you know, if you put anybody listening to this podcast You've all been asked before by your customers, how do we look in comparison to other customers? How is our, our ROI versus other customers? And the, I think it's just a basic expectation today.
2: Absolutely. And again, like I said earlier, there are software products that can help you, you know, showcase that to your
0: customers. Yeah. yeah. Hey, on, this, um, on these laws, as long as we're on them, one of the ones, excuse me, one of the ones that I found um, really interesting to me was that obsessively improved time to value is actually law number eight. Yeah, um, I
1: like that one too, Kev.
0: Yeah, yeah, and and for SaaS companies, it's the length of the subscription, and so I'd, I'd like you to talk about that a little bit. But then it just blow my it just blew my mind when I thought about uh, what does that mean for consumption.
1: Well, even what PLG is, though. Alice, yeah. and also for PLG companies, they have to obsessively improve. You know, time to market, time to value. Otherwise, you know, if it keeps extending, customers are like, "I'm just not getting any value
0: here." So, and what are the things good. people are? Yeah, what are the things people are doing? Start with subscription, and then talk about the other about the other uh, models.
2: For sure, yeah. T- time to value is, as noted, one of the most important metrics I think you can have in customer success or, or at your company generally, and. Um, and very interestingly, I've noticed time to values, uh, as metrics improving over the years. Nowadays, it, it's very unusual that I would talk to a company and they would say, uh, it takes us several months to implement our software for our customer. And that's like very rare at, yeah. at this point and probably would have more to do with like the age of, of company. Um, you know, if, if they hadn't adopted, more modern software best practices or might have to do with the industry. Like if you're selling into an industry that, um, happens to be, you know, have very tough implementations for one reason or another. But for the most part, I see time to values having massively improved. And, um, I think it's a result of a few things. I think one is that products are just getting better. Um, they're more easily usable. Um, I think they're built more for the user um, than they used to be. They used to be built for the executive who's watching, watching, um, you know, looking at the demo. Now they're built more for the person who's um, administering the product and using it. Um, I think also there are many more products that vendors can buy to kind of build into their tech stack. And so certain things that you might have had to do Yourself, you now no longer have to do a good example of that is um, the you know, integrations software. It used to be that you would have to hook up the integrations between all these software products yourself when you were trying to get a customer live on your product. But now you can buy software that automatically, you know, allows you to build all those integrations kind of um, natively in your product. So, um, you know, that I think all those things have contributed to better time to value. I think c- companies are also. Better at measuring it, and so they can learn how to get better at it over time as they you know continue to grow um, and uh, you know and I, th- I think they're more thoughtful about staffing up to ensure that there is if if needed that there is a human supporting onboarding um, so you know definitely I think it's a it's an area you have to focus on. I, I would also say that there are other types of um Strategies that people have used to get their customers help. Having really strong product documentation is very important. It's important to keep it up to date. Um, increasingly we're finding that the users of products are more technical than they used to be, even if they're not, you know, actually developers or people who are necessarily in technical roles. They have more technical skills, which often means that they're more comfortable looking at product differentiation and answering their own questions um, and I think the best companies think of documentation as a type of product in itself where mm-hmm. they release updates to documentation in a structured way um, they think about the impact of a new release on past documentation on pa- you know, past documentation that was written and ensure that it's kept up to date um, so what about just-
1: communities you know that, that they could reach you know, users could reach out to also that can help support the product.
2: Definitely, yeah, definitely. Community, I think, is um, a really important um, asset that companies have in order to scale the kind of help that they
1: can give to users. What, what are, are some do ways you to- see most companies having that, Allison? What yeah, percentage of the ask. companies you've run into actually have a community that will help, you know,
0: address certain worker? How do you get fixes? Con- and I don't want to say negatively, but how do you control the community to make sure that you're guiding the community in a way? Yeah. Or is that a fallacy?
2: You know, I, I think that um, that it's very common for large companies to have communities where people can ask technical questions. Um, I think, you know, um, increasingly in the earlier stages, I'm noticing users being more self sufficient than they used to be, like using documentation. Um, but definitely community is a valuable way to scale.
0: Now, the last thing on that question on obsessively improved time to value, are there, is it just the same for consumption or is there any nuances?
2: I think what is often true for companies that have consumption-based pricing models, although not always true, is that they have some kind of self-serve signup where, you know, individual users will sign up for a product and therefore the onboarding is at the user's level, not an organization's level. Um and so you know the thinking about user level onboarding it's it's often a different type of problem than company level onboarding and company level onboarding which used to be the norm you would have to um you know get a bunch of different functions into a room to talk about how what the project plan is and yeah. how you're going to manage this implementation you might have like a, a a group training at the end to get all the users into the room and train them on the product. Um, actually, at Gainsight, in the early days, we used to fly our customers' teams into a particular um, classroom setting where we would train them, right? On like how to how to use the product. Um, but, you know, at, at the user level, it, it might be simpler in some ways, but also the expectations are, are very high. Usually, user-level onboarding is done, again, in a self-serve way, using like documentation and, you know, perhaps like some email correspondence. um, It is interesting to see that some companies find that there's a lift in their lifetime value of their users if they have a human in the loop, um, Mm -hmm. which for very product-oriented companies might initially seem kind of crazy. But Superhuman is one example, actually, of a very product-oriented company that found it valuable to have a 30-minute onboarding call for every new user with a person who would walk them through how to use the product. For those who don't know, Superhuman is basically like a a super email uh, inbox. And uh, you can use keyboard shortcuts to do all the different operations that you normally would uh, with your inbox. Um, I remember going through this onboarding myself maybe five or six years ago when I first started using Superhuman and was surprised that they bothered to have a human call me. Um, But I could tell that They weren't simply satisfied with having a person on the phone with me. They wanted to make that person much more efficient in the way that they helped onboard me so that they could potentially, I imagine, shorten those calls over time, but then also increase the value of that call to me. In particular, they had um, their own sort of um, custom built product tutorial that that person on the phone walked me through. So, uh, you know, the tutorial would say, "Okay, now practice. Creating a new email by pressing this shortcut. Now practice searching through your email using this shortcut. And it forced me to do the thing that frankly, I might not have as a busy executive may not have bothered to spend the time doing on my own. So I think there's, um, there's probably an accountability mechanism in having someone on the phone with, with users. Um, there's also, you know, just the, the, um, uh, the benefit that you have of being able to ask someone questions you know, as you are going through a self-serve workflow. So, you know, I I encourage founders who are more technical to really think about, you know, how can you use the right combination of, of humans and software in order to drive the highest LTV lift for your customers?
1: Yeah. Hey, Allison, do you think in your experience now that most companies actually can get down to the granular level of understanding the root cause of churn?
2: and i i think that um some companies unfortunately think of it a little superficially yes. one way in which they might think about it superficially excuse me one way in w- which they might think about it too superficially is they might note things and um, r- root causes that are outside of of their control seemingly like um the sponsor of our product left the company or yes. we lost to a competitor or this company was acquired by another company. Well, those are interesting facts, but maybe don't speak to root causes that existed, but that were also in your control. Um, when your customer gets acquired by another company, that is not an obvious churn or like a you know, an inevitable churn reason. Actually, it might be an opportunity to expand your deployment to the larger company that just acquired your customer. That might be the best thing that's ever happened to that account. So... And um, I think what, what's important about, you know, these facts is how, how do you respond to them? And, um, you know, it, it might be that you are, um, it, it might, it might be that those customers are not worth saving. Um, for example, you might find that you've sold to a lot of small business customers. It's sort of a fact of life that small business customers tend to churn at a higher rate. Many of them might go out of business or be acquired. You might decide that we no longer want to, you know, focus on the small business segment. We want to move up market, and, you know, and and that's fine. And it might be that you made execution mistakes with those small business customers, but you might decide it's not worth it to try to improve that execution. I think what's important is just being honest with yourself about what you can improve and and what you can't based on the strategy of your company at the time.
1: So when you look at the different, just to educate our audience that may not understand how you measure churn, can you quickly explain the different ways in which people measure churn? And then also, you know, which of those metrics tells the true story of churn?
2: Usually folks are measuring churn both on a, particularly in the early days, but I, I think in general it's good to do this, on um, both on a dollar basis and also a logo basis. Yes. Um. You know the, the dollar basis is obviously very important because it maps back to your P&L as a company and it's harmful when you're losing revenue. But the logos are also valuable to look at because it essentially says, here's the number of people that are unhappy with you. And that's an important number because especially if you're an early stage company trying to establish yourself, the more people you have out there that don't like you, <laughs> the 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 harder it may be for you to... Build positive word of mouth about your company, and um, hire great people, and um, you know, and also track great investors, and of course, attract great customers going forward. So I, th- I think it's valuable to track both. Um, of course, people also track net dollar retention, not yes. just gross retention. Gross retention is the inverse of gross churn. Net dollar retention says, well, you can make up in in one way um, for gross churn by upselling other customers. So it might be that some of your customers stayed with you and they bought more from you over time. So you take the net of the churn and the expansion and you end up with net dollar retention. So gross retention can be up to 100%. Net dollar retention can be greater than 100% because you might expand more than you churn. Um, net dollar retention, I think, is has become the gold standard for measuring revenue from your customers and how it's moving. I think generally people look at um new logo revenue those are the new um new customers that you're bringing in they're bringing in a certain amount of revenue and then they look at net dollar retention which is you know if you if you brought in a new logo dollar how much were you able to expand that say over the course of a year um and you know you say best in class net dollar retention is probably 140% plus okay. um yeah. but uh the problem with net dollar retention is that It doesn't tell the full story. because That's where I wanted to go. Yeah, right. Because you you might have so many... It
1: masks a problem. It says you're doing great in your install base or or you're doing great with the customers that have not left you. But it's not talking about the customers that have left you and how fast your install base is decreasing.
2: Exactly. Yeah. And and that decrease, even if you're making up for it in a sense of expansion, that decrease is a problem because one, as I noted, you end up with more people out there who aren't happy with you for whatever reason. Two, you've lost a customer that you could potentially expand. Um, So there's a a missed future revenue opportunity. And the fact that you're losing those customers might signal that something else is wrong. For example, your product might be deficient in some way, or maybe your go-to-market strategy isn't appropriate. Maybe you're not selling to the right type of customer. You need to change your ICP, your ideal customer profile. Um, perhaps there's some kind of execution problem. M- maybe the fact that you're losing some customers points to misalignment between functions at your company that are expected to work together in order to ensure strong customer outcomes. So, you know, if, if you're kind of ignoring that churn, you might be ignoring more fundamental problems that might handicap your growth as a company.
1: And you've seen it all over the map, mm-hmm. as you just explained, for those different reasons, or is there? do you see more of a common reason?
2: Uh, Um, I'd say the most common cause of churn in, um, top down companies, as opposed to sort of bottom up, like more product like companies tends to be the loss of a sponsor. The person who was the executive that initially signed the contract leaves the company and you're stuck trying to put together the pieces, working with this successor who might have a different perspective on what vendor is right for you and, um, you know, maybe if you didn't generate enough value for the users, there's not a more organic, like homegrown movement to support your company. So uh, loss of sponsor tends to be the most common. I'd I'd say another very common reason is onboarding failed. Uh, So when we talked about the importance of of onboarding, um, you know, there are obviously other types of reasons that a customer might cite for why they would churn. I think the As a as a CEO though, if you're looking at your company and thinking like, what can I learn from churn? It it should your mindset should always be, how can I make the fundamentals of my company better? How can I um have create better product market fit, um, sell into a market that is ready to buy my product and um has large budget um in particular, readily available? Um, you know how can I improve alignment at my company? Uh, there's actually a blog post that I I published. Um, I think it was about a year ago about. Um, well, it was, it was entitled "Talent Efficiency," but it spoke to seven fundamental attributes of a company that, if you've got them, it makes it much easier to grow your company into an $100 million revenue business. And as a founder, you should always be thinking about, in my opinion, those seven things. Churn is is one vehicle through which you can learn about how to improve those seven things.
0: So when when you say a company has has to find a natural orientation around CS and the roles that you need to have to be successful in implementing CS, what do you look for as yeah. it relates to product and marketing and sales? And
2: Yeah, you know, I, um, I think a really interesting indication uh, early on of whether a founder is naturally oriented toward helping customers is do they talk about customer success stories in their pitch deck, right? Like, yeah. here's, here are some logos of customers that we're working with. And here are some quotes that from those customers or you know, how they have gotten value so far and, and maybe some statistics that those companies would mention in terms of the ROI of your product. Um, You know, often I think Sometimes CEOs, I think, are oriented toward, oh, we got this like flashy new customer, but they may not be as oriented toward just like bragging about their customers initially to investors in terms of the value that they've been able to generate for customers. Um, Other founders are, you know, very keen on um, generating value well before they charge customers. And then, uh, you know, when they have these, what they often call like design partners, at some point, the design partner might say, hey, you guys are adding so much value for us. You're so core to what my team does at this point. We couldn't imagine living without you. Because of that, we have to have a contract with you. We have to start paying because I worry that without formalizing this, we we might have to give you up right at, at some point. Um, I, I get so excited for my founders when they start hearing that from customers. It's the ultimate proof when customers come to you and say, we have to start paying now. So that's another good indication of whether I think a company is really naturally attuned to customers. Another one, as I mentioned earlier, is that a founder hires a customer success person as yeah. one of their first customer facing hires. Yeah. On, yeah. On, Johnny, on, on I, have to,
0: I have to ask the question. I I have a couple more before we have to go. Okay. I know that um, Allison has a hard stop. Where to align client success, customer success, the age old question. Is Is it separate from sales? Is it part of sales? Pros and cons? Could you just bring us home on that?
2: This is a great question. I don't think there's a universal answer. And actually, although Gainsight, certainly we were selling into functions that were usually called customer success or client success. I'm not particularly biased toward that function. What matters to me as we've been discussing is whether a company in general is creating value for their customers and, and different functions might contribute to that. As an example, as I'm sure you all know well, um, At Snowflake, there isn't a function called customer success. There's sales, and there are, I believe, solution architects. And they work together, I think, across the entire customer journey. That seems to work quite well. And actually, at DBT Labs, where I'm on the board, they're an incredibly successful company backed by amazing investors like Sequoia and Andreessen Horowitz, and they're growing incredibly fast. And they have a similar structure to that. They have Uh, account executives on the sales team, working side by side with solution architects across the customer journey. Um, What's important is the combination of skills that that set of functions creates. You need to have someone who's covering stakeholder alignment, conversations where persuasion is important, someone who is um, really internalizing like the high level ROI that a customer is getting, someone who can work with executives at the customer. And then you need someone who's working with the practitioners, helping them be more productive with the tool, giving them tips on a technical um, level. And as long as you've got those two things covered, um, you know, you, you should be fine in generating great customer outcomes. So, um, I, I don't believe there's a universally right set of functions or org chart. I think what matters is that you're covering all of the quote unquote jobs to be done at your company.
1: And as you say in the book, injecting CS into the, you know, existing way that people work and, and our comp. So you're seeing more and more salespeople being comped on net new ARR, meaning if I bring in a million dollar deal, but I lost a customer for a hundred thousand, I'm getting paid on nine hundred thousand. And then they're aligned also to the compensation plan of the client success people. So then it's almost like you're forcing them almost through the comp plan. You're changing the behavior and almost forcing them to work together. Absolutely. I'm I'm seeing things like that. And then we talked about instrumentation in the product. And you're also starting to see some things that marketing is doing with marketing strategies around the data that they're collecting from client success injected into their organization also. So, Allison, I know that you have to go. I know that Johnny and I... (laughs)
0: feel like we're, we're going to have to invite her the back. The if she'll you. come back, we're going to have to we're invite gonna her back. We're going to have to like
1: lure you back somehow. But thank you so much for giving us and our audience such a, you know, fantastic overview of, of client success and some of the elements of it. You, you did an awesome job. Thank you.
2: Thank you for having me. This is a lot of fun. You all ask great questions and I'm happy to come back at some point.
0: Hey, Allison, let's just make sure we know um, how do people engage with you?
2: I spend most of my time working with CEOs as a result of having invested in them. So I tend to be a CEO of thought partner to CEOs, you know, pre-seed through, you know, the later stages of the company. Um and you know they're welcome to, you know, reach out to me. LinkedIn is probably the best way.
0: And you've got an incredibly successful um newsletter as well.
2: Yes, I have a Substack. It's just called Allison Pickens newsletter. Um, and folks are welcome to subscribe there for free if they'd like to hear about best practices from CEOs who are scaling their SaaS companies.
0: And of course, the customer success economy, the book, why every aspect of your business model needs a paradigm shift. Alison Pickens, you were awesome. Thank yeah. you for joining us.
1: Allison, you're a powerhouse. Thank you. And Thanks to our audience for listening to another episode of the Revenue Builders Podcast.
0: Thanks for listening to today's episode. Be sure to check us out at forcemanagement.com.